so this morning, as you see, we're jumping into Luke 16, what some have labeled, quote, the strangest parable ever, end quote. Um, and then you have others that perceive it as so odd. Is this conversation actually integral? Uh, did Luke actually write it? And how did it get incorporated here into the Gospels? Because it seems there's a commendation here twofold. On the one side, it seems like there's a commendation if you were listening to the reading or if you read it earlier this week. Um, a commendation on the usage of unrighteous living or, or, or a recommendation of following an ungodly ethic. Um, you have a bad ethic. He encouraged you, hey, look, it worked out for him. I would advise you to follow suit. So one says, like, how is this even integral to Luke's gospel? Is this really what the Lord is saying? Is it, is it um, uh, right? Um, or is it just, yeah, the strangest parable I've ever heard? Uh, on the other hand, then you have that works righteousness element, right? Buy your way into heaven. Give money away and be generous so that when you die, God will open up the gates and welcome you in. So there's that element as well, where some say, here is proof positive in some measure that there is an element of calculation in your calculus of finances in order to be generous, be good, be moral, be kind, so that when you die in the end and it all runs out, God will say, you know, I witnessed the way that you lived and I saw the way you handled your finances. I saw your benevolence come on in. So as you see here, if you take that, those thoughts seriously, you see we have a lot of work cut out for us this morning. But, however, in some ways, it's, it's very easy. If we follow suit the way that we ought, each and every time we come to a parable, we want to be careful, we want to play by the rules of interpretation, and we want to be somewhat simple-minded. Because parable teaching is immediately helpful. It's not meant necessarily to be confusing in the measure that the Lord is saying, okay, let me explain to you. In this sense, if we don't get too involved and we see and we step back and look at the major parts and pieces, we're able to kind of step back and say, ah, ah it's not that surprising. Actually, it's incredibly helpful. So let's kind of begin to attack the parable a little bit to see it is immediately very helpful, and it's not that tricky, and it's definitely, just for argument's sake, integral to Luke's gospel. If you notice the first hint at what we're doing here, we ended last week with verse 32 of 15. Again, the, the final comment um, on loving mercy and the word of the gospel to the Pharisee that, again, um, he too can share in grace, but it is to be received. It isn't to be owed to him. So then that's the final kind of conclusion to the Pharisees. And you notice a shift in the focus of the narrative in 16.1. He also said to his disciples. So now it's not like no one else is present. There's still a larger audience in the room, as it were. But now he's zeroing in on the disciples, those who are committed to following, those who are in earnest to learn what he has to say. So it's marking the direct address to the, to the, to the Pharisee. It's marking a shift away from a direct address, but they're still around. They're still a part of the scene, and we'll see how that is the case in just a moment. They're still a part of the scene, but he's zeroing in on the disciples. So in one particular way this morning, if you consider a deed to be a disciple yourself... Um, this is direct address in, in that sense to you. It's a direct encouragement to you. It's not the antagonism to you. It's not, it's not challenging your call or your cost. It's speaking to you as a disciple. 
take note in the way that you're living your life. I'm speaking to you guys is how it's moving. However, as I said, the Pharisees are always in the picture. They've been in the picture since chapter 9, really, in a major focus. We've moved from chapter 9, and can you believe it, within, I was notified just, the other, just yesterday that we're coming up almost, not quite, but almost on two years, and we're in the 16th chapter. So I know you remember a lot that's been going on. Since chapter 9, we've been dealing with the Pharisees in dialogue a lot. They're, they're the opponent to the Lord. And so they never totally fade to the background. They're still in the periphery. In fact, look over in verse 14, because we'll get there next week. But verse 14 is kind of their response to what they're hearing. Now again, he's saying, I wasn't talking to you directly. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. So you know what the topic's going to be in 16. But he's giving you a feel for this. Okay, this is who they are. We know them to be this. They're lovers of money. So they heard Jesus explaining all these things, the text says, about money. They heard him. They were there. Now, he wasn't talking to them, verse 16, or, or chapter 16, 1. He said to his disciples, but they heard all the things he said to them. And then you see their response, which is by now predictable. They ridiculed him. So again, they are still very much on the target of our Lord. As he also instructs his own people, he's touching on every nerve that the Pharisees possess. He's addressing even the helpfulness to his own is in a way a rebuke on the Pharisees who are watching. So it's kind of like in the room, I'm talking to you right now, but I know this person and you know this person is looking at us and they're listening and they're weighing in and they're thinking about it, but block them out right now because I'm talking to you. But even though I know I'm talking to you, I know this person's listening and they're getting angry. And it's purposeful. That's what he's doing. He's instructing his own, but he's drawing out the Pharisees. He's touching on every nerve of their ungodliness. Now, again, I do want to touch one more time as we jump into the parable a bit how confusing it can be, particularly with verse 9. Again, to draw your attention, we're moving toward verse 9. But you see, we've got a little bit of work. Verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Now, again, who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to the disciples. What in the world could he be saying? Well, make friends with unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Again, back to the thought, this perhaps maybe is the strangest parable ever. But if we walk through the piece, uh, or through the text piece by piece, we'll see, again, it's immediately helpful. Here it is one who's being directly addressed in the text. There's three pieces to this parable that will help us draw out the big picture and the applicational meaning. Number one, I want to handle the confrontation of the owner. That's the first piece we'll handle in the text, the confrontation of the owner. Number two, the actions of the manager. And then thirdly, we'll see the commendation from our Lord, which begins in verse 8 and then has that language of verse 9. All right, so what's the point of the parable? Jump with me into verse 1 and 2, and the way that we're going to tackle it again is handling the first piece, the confrontation of the owner. Verse 1, he, that is our Lord, also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Charges were brought to him that this man was wasting 
his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, obviously, as you hear this issue of the confrontation of the owner, somehow this manager, what we know, the manager is wasting the owner's money. Right? It's obvious. There's something going on. What the actual manager is doing, we have no access to. But if we look at what his behavior is in a few moments, the chances of what he's doing to waste the, the owner's money is simply this. He's risking too much money by lending it to people who largely will not make payment. That's what's going on. So you can kind of figure a, lot, a person with a lot of money, a lot of assets, allows a manager to do the micromanaging of the money. He's the one who is choosing the investments. He's the one that's collecting on the accounts. So, it, and, and what's happening here is rumor gets back to the, con, to the owner and he says, what is this that I'm hearing about you? I hear that you're out there wasting my money, that you're blowing it, that you're lending it improperly. Why would you even be doing it? Well, think about it from the manager's standpoint. If you overinvest or you heighten the risk, you will maximize your, that is the manager's, commissions. Largely, the, the, the person with all the finances is removed from the daily activity, but the greed of the manager starts to come out when he's not being watched. I was thinking in my mind, all of us have this fresh in our mind. It's not that long ago. I think it was somewhere around 2008. At least it was in the mid-2000s. Um, it was similar somewhat if you wanted to kind of put it into 2008 terminology or somewhere in there. It's similar somewhat in a parallel way to the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac situation. Um, right? There's this sense where here this manager is overqualifying people for loans in order to hopefully maximize the penalties and commissions over the long term of the loan. There's no way you could pay my manager back. But I'll tie you into a long-term payment plan that will work out for me and increase my margins. Unfortunately, the loans are defaulting at this point. And now the benevolent owner finds out that the manager is overly risky with his finances, loaning it out to people who cannot pay, and wasting all of the money. If you keep it in the first century context, you know, as well as I do, there were no government bailouts in the first century. You were on your own. That guy lost all that money. Whatever the manager sought to do on a daily level, it was the calculation that was going to burn or prosper the owner. And then the manager was also in charge of reporting his own commissions, how much he was actually making on the investments that he was doing on his own. All in all, what we see, if I can read one and two for you once again, putting that in perspective, look what happens in the text so far. He also said to his disciples, look, think about it this way. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him. That is, rumors were coming in. That this man, the manager, was wasting his possessions. And again, I'm tying it to overlending, <clears throat> taking greater risk in order to maximize profits. So what did the owner do? Verse 2, he called him in and said to him, what is this that I hear about what you're doing? Not that you're overlending, but you're losing all my money. 
So that's it. This is the final conclusion to the confrontation. Verse 2. Turn in the accounts that you manage, for you're no longer the manager. In other words, you're fired. Now, notice the language, however, has some sort of wiggle room in it for the manager. You notice there in the language, turn in the account of your management. There's some sort of time frame given here that he needs to act on this turning over the accounts. I need to settle my accounts, hand them into the owner because I'm losing my job. Not as in immediately, right now, you're gone, out the door. You're fired. Don't return. There's some sense of hand in the accounts. Now, this is where the meaning of the parable starts to emerge where it begins to already immediately make sense of what the Lord is trying to teach all of us, that is, his people. It begins to emerge as we zero in on the manager's actions. So now the focal point of the text is on the manager. The, 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 the owner fades to the background for now. The weight of the text is on the movement of the manager. He knows right before me is, I got told, he walks out of the office and he's thinking to himself, I've got to settle and turn in my accounts. I just lost my job. That's where you are in the text. You're like, okay, what is he going to do? Right, right, because this is the lesson of the parable. What is he going to do? Notice verse 3 and 4. And the manager, okay, so he walks out of the office knowing he lost his job. The manager said to himself, Self, what shall I do? What is my next move here? I have to turn in my accounts. What shall I do? Since my master fired me, he's taken the management away from me. What am I going to do? I know what I'm not going to do. A, I'm not strong enough to dig. <laughs> I know that. I'm not going to work on the chain. I, I, I can't do that. That's not my style. I'm not strong enough to do that. I, I, what am I going to do? This guy is deliberating in his mind his next move. Think about the meaning of the parable. I'm not strong enough to dig. <clears throat> and I'm just too classy to beg. <clears throat> so... What am I going to do? Verse 4. Ah, I have got a plan. I know exactly what I'm going to do. Verse 4. I've decided what to do. Now, again, it it doesn't tell you what he's decided to do. the, the, The thought of self, I know what I'll do, fades away. But yet, you are hooked into the story now because you need to know what is he going to do. I have decided what to do. Now, look at the text. The reason why is key to the meaning of the parable. Why is he going to do what he's about to do? You see it there in verse 4. So that when I am removed from management, you know, when I get fired in a couple of weeks, people may receive me into their houses. Now, think about this for a moment. He knows, as you see in the text, it is simply too late in life to be making a career change. I'm not going to work and dig ditches. I'm not going to do it. 
And really, there's nothing else I know how to do either. Um, so I'm just too far down the stream being a financial manager to go do anything else. So what am I going to do now? And you notice, again, he is too highbrow to go around begging. That's embarrassing. People know who I am. People know what I've done. I can't go around begging. That's not an option either. So as you see the dilemma of the manager, now that he's been caught, he is caught between a rock and a hard place. There is no movement. So what does he do? And this is the simplicity of the parable. He creates a strategy for ensuring a good future. Think about that just for a moment as a disciple. That's the meaning of the parable. Think about it just for a moment. He creates a strategy for ensuring a good future. This is very similar. Go back to chapter 12 real quick. This is very similar because you've already seen this at work in the gospel already. Go back to chapter 12 just briefly. Because you've already been warned about this perspective before as a disciple. In chapter 12, verse 20. But God said to him, fool, you're going to die unexpectedly. A whole lot quicker than you thought. In fact, you see it in the text, verse 20. This night, your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose are they going to be? What does it even matter You're going to die before you ever enjoyed the things that you have purchased. You're going to die today. The thrust of it, verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You're bankrupt in the end, and the end is all that matters. You're living in the moment, and you're not thinking about the future. That's not so with the manager. The manager knows the future. I'm going to be fired. So you see, he embraces what is to come. He knows it is reality. I'm going to lose my job. What am I going to do? Well, I'm here. I know the future is here. I need to get from here to here. So in between... He creates a strategy to ensure a good future outcome. Keep that on your mind as you go through this text. This is the word to you as a disciple. You know the future outcome. You know its certainty. You have its hope implanted deep within you. How little of us give way to deliberate, strategize, live in such a way as to ensure a good future outcome. But look at the manager. This is the point of the parable. The point of what we see so far already in the manager is that he is very purposeful, he is deliberate, and he is coordinated in his strategies in order to ensure that he has a positive future outcome. That is what our Lord is commending in verse 8. Just jump down to verse 8 real quick, and you'll see the thrust of it right there, verse 8. But we'll get there through 6 and 7 as well. But just look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, again, he's not commending him because he's unethical. 
He's commending him for his deliberate calculation. This is what, it's the deliberate nature of the manager that is commendable. And it is at that same point a rebuke, a warning to Christians, to disciples who are not deliberate at all. Because, right, you know the future just like the manager did. Now, follow the rest of the parable just for a moment to see exactly how he begins to work his plan. Because remember, he knows he's going to be homeless and without a job soon. So he needs people to help him out. He needs to network. So he has, according to verse 4, I know what I'll do. Verse 5. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one. This is what he has decided to do in verse 4. Remember, he's doing this so that when I'm fired, I'll have a place to go. Implementation of the plan, verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, that is the collecting of the accounts. He said to the first, hey, how much do you owe my master? Right? This is a typical financial update. It's not like the first time they've ever met. He's coming by and he's collecting on what he's supposed to collect on. It's a standard transaction. The guy knew him. Oh, hey, that's Stan. He's coming over here to collect on what I owe him. Here's the check or here's the, the, here's the coins. Take it. Here's what I owe. You know my monthly payment. Go and settle your accounts. You can't be my manager anymore. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll call each one in one by one, just like I always do. But this time will be a little different. Because I know what's coming. How much do you owe my master? The individual says, a hundred measures of oil. Right? A lot. He said to him, you know what? We're going to do something different today. Take your bill and sit down quickly. Um, I don't have a lot of time to waste here. I got to sell these accounts. Right? But the person doesn't know what the manager's up to, sit down quickly and write out 50. You owe 100? Give me 50. Change the bill. Just write it out that you only owe 50. Then he said to another person, at another financial update, at another gathering of the debts, and how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of wheat. Well, wheat is different than oil. It's a different commodity. So he said to him, uh, all right, take your bill and write 80. Now, think about what the manager is doing. Remember, think about it, because he's commended for it in verse 8. And he's not saying this to them or to them. He's saying it to the disciples. He needs a new landing zone for his future to be a good one. That is the manager. He needs a new job. He might even need a place to stay for a while after he gets fired. And he doesn't think being fired is a possibility. He knows it is the next step. He's gone. His future is certain. So he needs a network. Again, don't think for a moment that this messenger or the manager is somehow moved by compassion for any of these people who owe. He's not at all. He has no compassion. That is not what this is about. It's not about, you know what, I've seen you had a rough harvest. 
go ahead, forget about it. Just put 80 down. I won't tell. You don't tell. It'll help everybody out. Man, you're the best debt collector I've ever worked with. It's not, no, 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 no. It's not that kind of thing here. Remember, he said to who? Self. What should I do for self to have a good future outcome? Let me ask you this. Where does he come up with the numbers? If we're looking at the debt relief program that he is unilaterally running on his master's account, where does he come up with the number? Why is he choosing with the oil? Okay, with oil, I'll cut you in half. Well, I owe some wheat. Well, I'll cut out that 20%. Where where is he coming up with the numbers? And the answer is simply this. Commissions. You see, he makes a certain percentage of commission or interest off of each type of commodity account. There's where the numbers differ. I owe this much oil. All right, well, you know what? You know what we actually make on oil? Just write down 50. I I owe uh, this much wheat. That's fine. You know what we make on wheat? Of course, he's not disclosing it, but he's cutting it. Why? Why is he wiping down the accounts? Because he's wiping out his commission in order to square the account with his boss. The boss will get what the boss needs in the oil, and the boss will get what the boss needs in the wheat. He'll take a hit on commissions now in order to secure a future to come. He knows he's being fired. What am I going to do? I can't dig ditches. I'm not going to beg. I'm too good for that. I know what I'll do. I'll settle the accounts with my boss. I'll wipe out my commissions. And the folks that I'm dealing with will never even know. I'll appear to be a savior to the people who owe the debts. You see, he's sacrificing what he might receive in the moment in order to secure a future outcome. I'm going to be homeless. What should I do? I'll appear so benevolent, so kind, so forgiving, and so gracious a debt collector. These people won't do anything but help me when I tell them the story about why my boss really fired me. They'll welcome me into their homes. They'll help me with my future plans. Again, This is the important piece of the parable. The manager knows the future. He has definitely been fired. He needs these people to remember his benevolence in order they might welcome him in very short order, keeping him on his feet, providing for him, giving him a place to go, networking for him, giving him a roof over his head. What's the point? Again, disciple, right? Verse 1, he said to his disciples. There was a manager who took less in the moment 
in order to secure a better outcome for his future. Disciples, think about the future. This is the final portion of the text. Notice the commendation of the Lord, where he makes all that we've put forward so far very clear. Look at verse 8. After the calculus of the whole, give me this, give me that, I appear to have saved you life and limb. Don't I seem like a really good guy? Don't I seem like the kind of guy that if, let's just say, I fell on hard times, you would want to help out? Oh, definitely. That's what I wanted to hear. Great, we're on the same page. End of story one, verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager. He commended him for one particular piece of the entire plan. He commended him for his shrewdness. Now, again, if we walk through the remaining portion of the text, just for the last couple of moments, we're going to hit 9 and we're going to end in 13. But it begins with this word of commendation to the disciples. The owner, the master, commended the dishonest manager. Not necessarily for the dishonesty that he showed, but for his calculation, for his shrewdness. That is, if we were to look at the word shrewd and think, what, what, what is commendable? What does it mean to commend someone's shrewdness? It'll be explained in the text in a moment, but just consider it is a commendation of this individual's wisdom. It is a commendation of his calculating It is a commendation upon his strategic and deliberate path to a secure future when he knew the present to really be tricky. Hard to understand. Hard to know what to do next. He commends him for his knowledge of the future and his activity in the present that seemed to be very deliberate, very wise, and very calculating. It's in one way that the master is saying something along the lines of, you're an awful person, but I have to say, you're very clever. Now, get out. That was the end of the commendation. Good for you, you clever little weasel. Thanks for squaring my accounts. I saw the stunt you pulled on the commissions. I've heard new rumors now about you. Nice. Now, like I said, get out. End of story. Now our Lord clarifies for us, the disciples, the address to each and every one of us of the parable. It begins in 8b, right after the final story. We could have kind of broke verse 8 right there with shrewdness and begin verse 9 almost with a sense of 4. Because the story has the story kind of been encapsulated. Good for that manager. He was wise to work hard in the present, even sacrificially, in order to guarantee a future outcome. What are you saying? Well, think of it this way, for... The sons of this world, that is, the manager, 
the sons of this world, that is, everyone outside of Christ, those marked by the world system, those who live in unbelief, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. So, so, so think of it, sons of this world and own generation go together. It's the world system. And our Lord is giving us an example of it right in the manager. And he's saying, do you see? Do you see what's going on? The sons of this present age, where there is no future. They live here. They live now. It is momentary. And yet, look at how deliberate they are. The sons of this world are more shrewd dealing with each other than the sons of light. They're more calculating. They're more deliberate. They're more intent on the future that lasts a moment than the sons of light who have a future that is eternal. You just kind of go about things. Why? You have a future eternal kingdom. These folks who are just doing exchange after exchange, calculating, pulling one over on this person in order to ensure that they land on the perfect uh, nest egg. And the nest egg's gone. Remember, you're going to die tonight. You didn't even know that. You're going to die tonight. Who's going to have all this junk? Who? What does it matter? I'm just telling you, you did all this to accumulate all that. You were so shrewd, so deliberate, so calculating. I'll give you that. But just let me say, you're going to die tonight, and who gets all the junk? So it is with every single person who is rich in this age but is not rich toward God. Why would the sons of light be any less deliberate, any less strategic than this simple financial manager was in the moves that he pulled in order to guarantee the outcome that he desired when he knew the future to be certain? Do you know the future of the eternal kingdom to be any less certain then the manager knew of his getting fired? Why is it that we lack such deliberate and strategic lives of godliness? When a simple bank manager is more calculating and deliberate than a believer who interprets it or in receives an eternal kingdom. Look at the rest of the text as then it concludes. I tell you this, sons of light, you, the disciples, the sons of light, I tell you this, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now we're like, what? I think we had something going there, and it's derailed. No, no, no. We're still on target. A good rule of thumb, keep reading. It self-interprets. It unwinds. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little thing, is also dishonest in much. You can take it to the bank. If then you have not been faithful 
in the unrighteous wealth? Who will entrust you, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? There's a word group that just emerged in order to piece the rest of this text together, in order to set it in contrast, in order to easily receive its conclusion. The word group involves verse 9, unrighteous wealth. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What is unrighteous wealth? Does that mean like make bad dealings, steal cash, and manipulate others? No. Unrighteous wealth is what you see in verse 10, the very little. Unrighteous wealth and very little goes together. Go into the rest of the text and it says, and one who is dishonest in a very little, that is, in this simple momentary cash, in this simple momentary elements of stewardship, make friends for yourselves with unrighteous wealth. Be benevolent. It's a very little thing, verse 10. Be faithful in a very little thing. This unrighteous wealth, the momentary cash, if you are dishonest in this very little thing, what does that bode for the future? Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, there's that word again. Do you see? Unrighteous wealth is the very little thing. He clarifies it right there. If you haven't been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the simplicity of this age is wealth. Who will entrust to you the true riches that are to come? Who? Why are you just squandering with no sense of deliberate, strategic living in this age? Why? Why are you holding on to the unrighteous wealth? Why are you clinging to the very little thing? Why? How would you cling to such little things or the unrighteous wealth of this age and expect to be an inheritor of the things that are to come, that are true wealth? He's saying there is a correlation in time between the way you handle your money and view it now and the way that you really perceive the future. There's a correlation there. Finally, he ends it simply this way. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, that is the simple cash that is, in the, that is moving, the very little things, the unrighteous wealth, the things that are here and are going to simply fade away, somebody else is going to get them. If you're just squandering and wasting, hoarding and keeping, worried like the manager, in a negative sense, just about yourself, who will give you that which is your own? Verse 13 brings it home to the disciples. Guys, no servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one, love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and, you know, despise the other. In sum, you cannot serve God and money.
the manager for all of his faults. Needs to be commended, our Lord says, for his shrewdness. The fact that he was deliberate in the moment because he was sure and convicted regarding the future is the word of the disciples. Do you believe the future that is to come? Then let me ask you, how could it be so easily entrusted to you when you squander all that you have in the present as if that future didn't even exist? That's very unlike the shrewd manager. And remember, he's to be commended. A thrust of the parable, live with a heavenly foresight in the life that you manage. Particularly, he's hitting here in your finances, in your materials. Live in such a way as to invest in the future. You know, like the manager. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 